is dispossessing them before you. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going in to occupy their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is dispossessing them before you in order to fulfill the promise that the Lord made on oath to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? Now, step back and think about that. Uh, we all grew up where um, we got chosen for things, right? Okay? So think about school. So, um, so if we're going to play basketball, um, I mean, I don't care how old Michael Jordan is, if he's in the group, unless there's someone other, you're going to take him, right? Uh, in this particular room, if we were going to play volleyball, uh, there is a person in this room I would pick first, okay? Because he played volleyball for Pepperdine, okay? Um, I mean, some of you may surprise me. You, there may be a ringer in here that I don't know about, but, but I do know we got one ringer. I mean, think about it. We live in a world where we always get chosen because of who we are, right? I mean, Mensa, because how bright we are, or clubs, or, you know, this kind of thing. That's the world we live in. Deuteronomy, uh, one of the things Israel grappled with was why God chose them. Okay? And it's a challenge. It goes counter to everything because we live in a world where we just want to be, we want to know that it must have something to do with us. And that's what ancient Israel grappled with. Well, surely God chose us because we were. And so notice Moses goes through. It's not because you were more numerous. It's not, not because you were more powerful. Um, I mean, really, if you think about it, if God were going to choose people that were impressive, the Egyptians built stuff, had already built stuff that was far more impressive than anything Israel would ever build. Exactly. Okay? I mean, the Greeks had philosophy. Uh, you know, the Romans paved the world or whatever. You know, I mean, think of all these impressive people, the Hittites, the Assyrians, that kind of thing. So why did he choose ancient Israel? And notice the, the ultimate ringer in, that we come to is, well, maybe he chose us because we're better than everybody else. And his line here is, um, no, it's not you're more righteous. It's just everyone else is so awful, you look a little better. This is what I used to jokingly call, this is the old, you're not as ugly as your sister kind of compliment. I mean, it's a terrible that kind of thing. But we live in that world, right? And if we're not careful, we think, well, that's the way it was um, in those days, but not anymore. But think about Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, right? God chose the least likely candidates to change the world. So that's why I say the two reasons that are given in Deuteronomy for why God chose is simply because he's keeping promises, he's a faithful lover, and, uh, well, he's a faithful lover, he loves, and he keeps promises, right? Rick, and then this one becomes another yes. There is one thing that I was thinking as you are making the comments. Uh, when they did rise to power and become prominent with Solomon, Spiritually, they went the wrong way. Right. So even that, that, that wasn't what he was all about. Yeah. And, um, um, and and some Christians think when America gets it together, then we will, <laughs> Christianity will, you know. And and I think there is a... Yeah, no, that's... Uh, and uh, let me follow up on that one, because I think we're in a really interesting moment. Um, 
I think you can make the case, and this is the passage that will do it. So it's a great segue. Moses went up to God, the Lord called him. You shall say to the house of Jacob, tell the Israelites, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the Israelites. Okay. Now, two or three things about, this is a, a great passage that, doesn't use love, but it's about God loving the people and their identity. God's love determines. So, so one of the, the striking things in ancient Israel and in Christianity is um, we get our identity from the identity of God. You know, we don't determine it first and foremost. But notice here, uh, it starts not with what the people did, but what God did. And then the people respond to that. Okay, I would argue uh, scripture starts with what God has done, not with what we do. We respond. Um, second point, um, Israel's identity is pretty striking. This, you will be my treasured possession. Uh, this is the term in Hebrew that's used. If, if your house is burning down, you can only get one thing and take one thing. This is what you take. Okay, this is what is most valuable. So it's a fascinating image, right, that God chose Israel to be. Now, that sounds wonderful, and then you get to the end where then God gives the people their identity and says, and you will be for me a kingdom, that sounds really good, of priests. You don't put kingdom and priests together, kings and priests um, because kings rule, priests are to serve. And to your point, then, I would argue that if you read Scripture, one of the, one of the things that becomes clear is ancient Israel consistently got in trouble when she tried to rule the world and not serve the world. And I think you can make the same case for Christianity. Christianity, uh, the church, was never created to rule the world. It was created to serve the world. And so we won't dabble, but that is a really interesting discussion going on right now in Christianity, where there's this mentality we think we can control. Okay. So let's um, now let's turn quickly, and I'll try to do this quickly because I want to do uh, 32 to 34 of X's. So I've mentioned about how impersonal this relationship is if you use the ancient Near Eastern or the Middle Eastern treaty concept because it's between nations and typically nations don't have personal relationships, okay? They sometimes marry to create them. So how do you personalize it? In the prophets, Hosea is the best place to see this. So when Hosea talks about the covenant relationship between God and his people, he personalizes it through three relationships. The first one, the husband-wife, the marital relationship. God is the husband, Israel is his wife. The second one is the parental. God is the parent. Israel is his child. The third one um, is personal if you grew up in an agrarian society. Farmers and their land. Less so if you're, you know, city people like many of us. But, but think about that, right? 
So the relationship between God and his people is the marriage relationship. And you see that clearly in Hosea. Or the parent, we'll do the one in, in Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my child. And I did all these things. It's this wonderful picture of the child growing up and the parent teaching the kid to walk and taking care of the kid and doing everything for the kid. And then when the kid gets old enough, he rebels and walks away. Okay? Or you see that more elaborately in the beginning of Hosea with Hosea and his marriage or his relationship with Gomer. Okay? Now it personalizes it. So when the rebellious child walks off, and remember, in ancient Israel, um, you got to have four capital crimes, right? One is the rebellious child. And so you remember uh, what should happen is that child should never be accepted back. And Hosea 1 is very likely the backdrop for the story of the prodigal son. Okay? You don't let the rebellious child back. But God's love, we've now come full circle, God's love overwhelms um, what seems to be right. Okay? Now, if you want to see Hosea uh, 100 years later in kind of the 7th century, he's in the 8th, so, you know, he's mid-700s or whatever, and you come jump down 100 years, Jeremiah uses the same imagery, the same analogies, okay? And again, lots of talk about the love of God. Okay, let's turn to this one. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, I mentioned... Um, a number of scholars would argue that this is as close as a creedal statement that you get in ancient Israel. Again, if you grew up like I did, uh, churches of Christ historically have been kind of a non-creedal tradition. We have non-creedal creeds is the way we kind of look at uh, you know, this my cynical view. But, but think about it. Often you could make the case that where do you see what's most central to who you are and what you believe. It's when you make these kind of statements. And this one turns up. I put a bunch of these, you know, in the bottom. You see it several times. So it's clearly important. This captures, in many ways, the essence or the identity of God in the Old Testament. Notice, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, uh, forgiving iniquity and transgression, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity, Okay, so let's, we'll try to unpack a few of these words. Now, uh, what I want to want you to catch, because this is, again, this is kind of a fascinating passage. It's in the context, 32 to 34, remembers the golden calf. And if you're like me, what, what we grew up, uh, what I grew up hearing in Sunday school was, um, well, uh, Moses got angry and he threw the stones down and cracked them, and he had to go back, okay? And the famous line from Aaron that, well, you know, when Moses said, what happened, Aaron said, I just tossed the junk in the fire, and it jumped out. I remember that as a kid, you know? Okay, now, what I didn't hear was a lot of the other stuff that's really pretty fascinating in there. Um, 
but really the passage is about allegiance to God, okay, and the character of God, um, and just as kind of, a, you know, nothing to do with anything other than it's fascinating, I think. Um, if you were to ask, I think if you were to ask most Christians, tell me a pivotal passage that is a defining passage for why things are the way they are, I think a lot of us would say Genesis 3. In fact, we even call that passage the fall, right? I mean, we all, that, that's familiar language. Especially, and it's especially interesting because if you look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, um, far more attention is given to the flood than the fall, the expulsion from the garden. But it has become kind of the defining thing. Now, the reason I mention that is if you grew up Jewish in Judaism, Exodus 32 to 34, the golden calf episode, is in Judaism what Christians kind of think of as Genesis 3, a defining moment. This is a pivotal moment or understood as a pivotal moment when Israel uh, was really grappling with walking away from God. In fact, uh, you have the rabbis. <laughs> One of the comments that's made is um, among the rabbis is that Israel breaks the first two commandments before she even gets them. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's an interesting kind of thing to think about, how you could break a law before you get it. But there you go. Now, remember the conversation. Moses goes up, and God is angry, okay? And God says, um, you know, I've had it with these people. They've already walked away. Um, I'm going to kill them. I'm going to visit them, which means they're going to be killed. Or I'm not going to go with them anymore. Neither of those options are good for the people. I mean, being absent from God is, is awful. Okay? So there's no hope for a good outcome on this. But the language is really fascinating. It really gives you insights into Moses, I think, and his relationship with God. In fact, uh, uh, interestingly, God says to Moses, have you seen what your people are doing? I mean, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? And Moses is like, well, I mean, you almost hear Moses like, wait, 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 uh, my people, you know, it's like, do you see? I mean, you've got this kind of thing. Um, and in fact, remember God says, I've had it with them. I think I'll wipe them out, and I'll start over with your family, Moses. That is an interesting moment if you're Moses. Okay? Moses says, not a chance. We are not going there. Okay? And so um, he begins to grapple with it. Now, I, I mentioned some of these because remember when I began about the, the, some of the assumptions we made about, or make about <clears throat> this personal relationship? Um, one of the interesting things is in the Old Testament, the only person who is ever mentioned as God personally loving them is Solomon, interestingly. Okay? Um, there are very few. Uh, Moses is fascinating because, again, the language is just <laughs> intriguing. Uh, the language with Moses is that he's the only person that God knew his name. That being, you know, it's like, Bob, I've never heard of Bob. It's, it's just very interesting, the relationship with Moses and how that plays out, okay? So notice, God says, your people, um, Moses, in fact, God tells Moses to leave him alone. 
Moses doesn't do that, okay? Again, uh, often the relationship is not doing uh, what they're saying. And he's going to start over with Moses' family. Moses then, interestingly, makes the case. And he tells God, you can't do this. Um, it's a very personal narrative. I mean, it's, it's incredibly well written. And the arguments Moses makes, it's not reasonable, you have invested way too much time, energy, and effort in these people to walk away now. Your reputation, okay? But most importantly, you made promises. So we've kind of come full circle. God keeps promises, and God faithfully loves. And that's what Moses goes to. He roots the, his entire argument in the character of God, okay? Okay? Now, again, if you remember how that narrative plays out, it's fascinating because uh, the impression you get is God saying, these people are atrocious. I can't believe I did everything to get them out. And Moses is kind of backing it down. And then remember when Moses gets down? That's the part we remember. Moses gets down and goes, you're right. This is awful. <laughs> and he's now angry. I mean, it's like, so it's like apparently God had a better sense of where they were. But again, the divine attributes, merciful and gracious, steadfast love and faithfulness. We'll talk about a couple of those. But steadfast love, this is the one, if people know any Hebrew word, it's often this one. This is the word hesed. Or just speak Hebrew, you know, you got to talk out of your thing. Chesed, you know, okay. And again, basis for forgiveness, he's going to extend. Now, I want to, that final one, uh, often people get, get caught on God. Um, yeah, punishment of the third or fourth generation. So this doesn't solve it, but let me suggest a different way of looking at this. Um, don't think in terms of modern families. Think in terms of ancient Israel and what a nuclear family would have looked like, right? Remember Abraham and his gang? And in a family, you typically have the grandparents, the parents, the children, and if things are going really well, you might have the, the great-grandchildren, right? right? You have at least three generations, maybe four. So one way to read Exodus 34 is... God, when he punishes, punishes to the third or fourth generation, you can see the extent of it because it's within your family. And it is true that the sins of the parents have huge implications for the kids and grandkids. Yes. Okay. But you can see the end in sight. You can see it. What you cannot see, the end in sight that you cannot see, is to the thousandth generation. God's love is never ending, okay? So that's a, a different way to take a look at this. Okay, let's finish then with, uh, quickly, uh, one of my favorite passages. So you remember Micah 6. This is the one, verse 8 is, he has shown you what is good and what you should do, okay? And you get that famous triad to, you know, steadfast love, justice, and to walk humbly with God. Now, remember we talked about a covenant, so in the prophets, when the people walk away from God, when they reject his love and his care, um, the prophets, so to speak, take the people to court for having broken the covenant. And that's the, the backdrop for Micah 6, for he has shown you what to do. And so notice he uses the language 
if God is a God who manifests steadfast love and does justice, shows kindness, and walks humbly, then that's the way his people should behave. This is what God is looking for. So the question is, you know, what does it mean to do justice? To do justice means to actualize the will of God in every facet of life, to engage in right conduct based not on personal advantage or what might benefit us, but what is the right thing to do, the best thing to do. The example um, I often give is, you remember in the New Testament, Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is not criticized for what he did. It's what he didn't do. Justice is not simply seeing the beggar at the gate. It's serving the beggar at the gate. And Lazarus cannot say, well, you know, if I knew any poor people, I would help them out. He, I remember, he calls that Lazarus by name. He knows the guy. Okay. The second one, love kindness. Um, this is the word for steadfast love for covenant loyalty. And two examples that I think are really good. Uh, if you remember the story in Joshua 2 about when the spies come and Rahab hides them, and when they're getting ready to go out and go back to their camp, and they ask, you know, so Rahab, what do you want? Interestingly, this is a Canaanite prostitute, and she says, I want you to show me steadfast love. She uses the term hesed, which is, and if you recall, the way it's written is, I want you to treat me the way I've treated you. And they do. They fulfill that promise. And so if we think about the steadfast love of God, this, the term hesed, steadfast love, can be used of humans. Interestingly, in, in the Old Testament, they, uh, there's a reference also to abounding in steadfast love. That's only used for God. Yeah. Humans, apparently, we can, we can catch steadfast love, but abounding in steadfast love is God. But Rahab says, I want you to treat me the way I've treated you. The other place is, if you know the story of Jonathan and David, um, I'm convinced Jonathan and David, Jonathan's handing David the kingdom. Yes. Those are the gifts. Yes. All the royal regalia that goes, Dave, uh, Jonathan's the crown prince and he's handing the kingdom over. That's what steadfast love looks like. And then the final one, walking humbly. This is not number three. This is the overarching. Um, this is not the term for poor, pitiful me. This is not that term, okay? This is the term that means to pay careful, studied attention to another, okay? So the best way I know to do this is... Um, Walking humbly with God means to pay incredibly close, careful attention to who God is, what God does, and how he behaves, and manifest God's love in our daily lives. Now, the line I often use is, um, we, we sometimes talk about that, you know, walking with God, and more often than not, when people talk about that, they kind of have this picture of sort of me and God wandering out through the woods or something. That's why I started with this notion that somehow the idea that Scripture is just about me and God and personal, uh, I think it's problematic. Before we talk about walking humbly with God, we might want to pay attention to where God has walked in Jesus Christ. He's, he's hung out with some pretty unsavory characters in some pretty challenging places if we're thinking that. And so the best example I know is Philippians 2. If you want a good Old Testament one, um, 
there's a psalm. I'm always kind of one-off on psalms if I'm not careful. I think it's 123, but it starts with, as the eyes of a servant are to the master, as the eyes of a maiden are to her mistress, our eyes are upon you, O Lord. That's what it means to pay careful attention to the one who oversees us. Okay, I've come full circle and finished. 12 minutes to spare, or actually two minutes over or whatever. So thank you all. I hope you have a great day and a great time here. Take care. Come back here. Come back.